Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Well, as a lot of you listeners know, on November 5th, I have a debate with world's, or I guess it's been called the nation's leading environmentalist, Bill McKibben, over fossil fuels, global warming, etc. And so over the next couple of weeks, I'm bringing in some of the world's best minds on the subject to pick their brains, to hear their ideas on various issues. And this week, we've got a really interesting guy, Dr. William Happer from Princeton University. Now, Dr. Happer wrote a paper that I thought was really fantastic for the Global Warming Policy Foundation called The Truth About Greenhouse Gases. And it's really one of the most uh, articulate and succinct treatments of the issue that I've ever seen. So I'd highly recommend uh, reading that piece. And once I read, I decided, all right, I got to have this guy on the show. So coming up, William Happer, Princeton University, physicist, fascinating guy on global warming. Stick around. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining us on the program is Dr. William Happer of Princeton University. Dr. Happer, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you for letting me speak. Oh, you're 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 more than welcome. Uh, so, for those of you who are not for those people who are not familiar with your work, could you give a brief introduction to your to yourself, to your scientific work, and then to your interest in the global warming issue? Well, yes, I'm a uh, physicist, and um, I've worked in uh, problems involving interaction of radiation and matter uh, all my life. Uh, I uh, first got interested in some of this atmospheric work when I was a member of Jason and we, we were working on uh, some of the early uh, climate studies uh, back in actually the 1970s and 1980s. Um, one of the things I did during that time having to do with the atmosphere was I invented the uh, sodium guide star, which is used today to compensate for uh, atmospheric turbulence uh, and its distortion of uh, astronomical seeing. So I actually know quite a lot about the atmosphere and about the uh, propagation of light in the atmosphere. I served for a while as the director of energy research at the Department of Energy uh, in the early uh, 1990s. So uh, in my budget, which was around three and a half billion dollars at the time, uh, we had a lot of work in climate science. So I, I knew what it looked like from the top also as a funder. So anyway, that's that's a little thumbnail sketch of my uh, uh, background. And at what at what point did you become involved in the, the politics of it and in the public discussion of it? Because in the last couple of years, you've written quite prominently, including in the Wall Street Journal, about the subject. 
Well, I guess uh, I'd always been uh, a little bit nervous about how this subject was going when I was in the Department of Energy and uh, trying to figure out what we were spending money for in this area. Uh, I uh, noticed that it, it was already then, this was the early 1990s, very political compared to all of the other research we were supporting. You know, most people we were supporting were very happy if, some bureaucrat like me was interested in their work and if they got invited in to, you know, talk to headquarters, they were just delighted to come and uh, tell what they were doing. But uh, climate was different. You know, people in that area were reluctant to come because they were already very political and uh, they felt that you know, if someone from Washington called them in, it was because of some political reason rather than it's than for a you know, genuine interest in the science of what they were doing. So this seemed uh, odd at the time, but I, you know, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it. And when my term in Washington was over, I came back to the university and got back to doing research. But then I became very uh, concerned when uh, uh, the... Uh, new uh, administration took office with people like uh, John Holdren, uh, Steve Chu, you know, Lisa Jackson, who were uh, really environmental uh, 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 zealots, I would say. And uh, so I felt that somebody had to speak up, that not all that's being uh, uh, claimed to be true by uh, scientists uh, really is true. So I, I, I guess why, uh, in answer, it's a long-winded answer to your question, but it was the, uh, it was the uh, hysteria I, I saw in Washington being used to uh, uh, make us make stupid policy decisions, in my opinion, which uh, forced me to speak up. Now I want to. Um jump off something you said that I think is, is really interesting and that I hear a lot. And you, I, I don't remember exactly, but it was something about how science was saying certain things that, that weren't true or weren't exactly true. And I find disturbing. Now, my background is in uh, philosophy, which a lot of which deals with knowing how much you know about a given thing and standards of, of proof and knowledge. And one thing I find very disturbing about science discussion in general and climate science in particular is that science is treated as a binary classification. That is, either something is science or it is non-science. And so people will say about the entire realm of everything claimed by establishment climate scientists, that's science. And then if you dispute that, then you're against science or you're against everything. How do you think of the distinctions between different levels of proof in science and, and different aspects of scientific inquiry that have been more or less established? Well, you know, the thing that has always characterized science, real science for centuries, has been skepticism and doubt. And, uh, you know, every thing that we believe in science is supposed to be subject to constant uh, questioning. You know, science is it's, it's different from mathematics. For example, you can't uh, question the Pythagorean theorem. Pythagorean theorem is true. But you can uh, question uh, 
things like uh, Newtonian physics, which it turns out is not a bad approximation, but it's not exactly true, as Einstein showed. Uh, you can question other things that uh, to take the original theories of heat, you know, that there was this phlogiston fluid. It turned out that that was just dead wrong. It wasn't right at all. And yet, Many people worked with it, and it had some successes. It led to, for example, uh, the theory of thermodynamics, but it wasn't correct. So uh, the idea that science is, is uh, you know, this edifice that uh, is absolutely true. It's just not. It's just not historically the way science has been. But that's what they have tried to uh, transform, you know, climate science into. That it's. Uh, it's absolute truth, and the truth is really determined by people voting rather than observation. And, uh, you know, it, it disturbs me to see science uh, uh, turned into this type of uh, activity. That's not what it was supposed to be. Uh, jumping on the issue of skepticism. So I, I, I understand that in a lot of ways, certainly that you want to be open uh, to lots of new evidence, but it, it seems like there's a fundamentally different distinct difference between, say, um, Newton's laws and whatever integrations with Einstein are necessary for a fuller understanding between those which have enormously have enormously deep, precise understanding a, and then b enormous predictive ability b versus something like claiming that feedback loops on top of the greenhouse effect. Are cause you know will cause a dramatic rise in sea levels. Those seems to be in two different categories of being established. One seems to be established. One seems to be speculative at best. Oh yeah, certainly. You know, all the talk about feedback loops in the climate is is extremely speculative, and I mean everything there uh, uh, is looking less and less like models predict, you know, the most striking uh, contradiction is that many of the models uh, had the courage to predict rising temperatures, you know, uh, which should have been uh, quite observable by now. And in fact, we've had more than 10 years of essentially no change in the atmospheric temperature. And uh, there are there were no models that predicted that. When you start seeing things like that, then you start thinking, well, uh, maybe I ought to look at the model again. Uh, maybe I, I missed something in, in, in my little computer program. Actually, they're big computer programs. There are many, many parts of the programs where there are rough approximations. Uh, and so the, there's lots of room for error. You wrote a piece that prompted me to ask you to be on the, the program. You didn't write it too recently, but it's for the Global Warming Policy Foundation, and I'll, I'll put it up on our, our website. Um, one of the lines that struck me was, you're talking about models, and you say, yet the models have failed the simple scientific test of prediction. And that I've heard yeah. before, but then you say, it's really interested me, we don't even have a theory for out, how accurate the models should be. Could you elaborate on that? Well, um, the models, um, uh, you know, you you can you can test, uh, say, a, a model in, in um, ordinary physics. 
by making a prediction, you say that, you know, the mass of the Higgs boson, which has just been discovered, you know, should be 125 GeV, and uh, you measure, and my goodness, that's where it is, and it's that way, that's where it is to within a few percent. And so that that's an example of a, a very good model, and one that has uh, actually uh, been verified, validated by experiment. Uh, so I, I actually I, I maybe I, I overspoke in saying that we don't know how good models have to be. Certainly, models have to be able to make predictions that when you go ahead and, and measure the what happens from those predictions, like what's the temperature change going to be in 10 years, that uh, what the model predicts ought to be what you observe. And uh, we, don't, uh, we don't observe what they predict. So there, there are many, many discrepancies. It's not surprising because the uh, climate is an enormously complicated system. You know, there are the oceans, there's the atmosphere, uh, you know, there's the sun, you know, there, there are long-term changes in ocean currents. And so it's hardly surprising that it's hard to make predictions that mean anything. Now, well, I, I, I want to agree even more strongly with what you said than you do based on, on my observation of how, the, of how the communication about these things is conducted. So on the one hand, we've got these extremely specific and drastic predictions. So global warming is going to cause mass malaria. It's going to melt the Arctic, which is somehow going to be disastrous. It's going to melt Antarctica. Like all of these very specific things. And yet when they do the models, they can't even do it on, on the average global temperature. They can't even predict that. But given the specificity of negative consequences, I would think that they should be obligated to be able to model those kinds of things. Otherwise, they're just they're just they're not giving a prediction of a of a causally valid model. They're just giving a random speculation in the same way that certain economists claim to have a perfect understanding of the economy. And they obviously didn't and didn't anticipate the financial crisis. Yeah, it is a little bit like economic modeling, which everyone knows doesn't work very well. Um, because like the economy, the climate is a very complicated system. But, you know, if, if you pause for a minute, the thing that reassures me that there's really not much to worry about is, uh, you know, CO2 at current levels is unusually low by the historical standards of the earth, you know, over most of the earth's uh, history, at least when life was around, CO2 levels have been much higher than now. The earth worked just fine. You know, the, uh, you know, the fish didn't dissolve in acidic oceans. Uh, you know, the earth didn't bake, you know, and three, four, five times as much CO2 as we have now, you know, the living, uh, Plants and animals did extremely well. They evolved and flourished. So it's not as though we're moving into unprecedented territory, which the Earth has not experienced before and hasn't already done the experiment. You know, there's just nothing unusual about changing levels of CO2 or changing temperature. The climate always changes, and the the idea that any storm or any hurricane has somehow has to do with you know burning fossil fuel, it's just nonsense because we've always had changing climate. 
you know, on every time scale, you know, over centuries, over thousands of years, over, you know, over a few months. So what's new? Right. Uh, so, so getting into understanding a bit of the mechanics of climate change and what what we should and what we should and shouldn't be concerned with, excuse me. Uh, one thing I enjoyed about your article was that up front you gave a very clear indication of the things that are known about it's about green. The articles on um, I think the truth about greenhouse gases. You gave an account of the things that we know about greenhouse gases that have been established with a high degree of, of knowledge versus other things. So could you give us just a primer on things like healthy, what we know about healthy levels of CO2, what we know about the greenhouse effect, et cetera? Well, uh, people keep calling CO2 pollution, which grates on me and many others because, you know, our own breath, you know, the levels of CO2 in our own exhale breath are 40,000 parts per million, you know, and uh, we're what now, 390 parts per million in the atmosphere, maybe 400 soon. But that's way, way less than what we exhale at at every breath. And it's way, way less than the historical norms on the earth, which have been more like several thousand parts per million. Uh, You know, greenhouse operators routinely increase the CO2 levels inside their greenhouses to 1,000, 2,000 parts per million just because you get much better plant growth with more CO2. Plants really do much better with more CO2 for several reasons. One, of course, is that's what they're eating when they're doing photosynthesis. They have to have carbon from somewhere. They don't take it out of the soil. They take it out of the air. And the second, even more important practical reason is that in getting carbon out of the air, uh, you know, letting the carbon dioxide diffuse into the leaf, they're losing water. And so the uh, water stress on plants is greater and greater the less CO2 there is in the air. So if you put more CO2 in the air, plants can tolerate much uh, much less rainfall, uh, uh, much more severe drought. And uh, uh, there's just no question about that. You can do the experiments. It's true. Uh, so now CO2 certainly is a greenhouse gas. CO2 absorbs infrared radiation that is trying to get out into outer space to cool the earth. And you put more CO2 in, in the atmosphere, you, uh, radiate a little bit less, but it's not very much because, uh, CO2, uh, uh, is already, uh, what spectroscopists would call a, a, saturated, that is, that it's absorbing and radiating just about as much as it can uh, for the levels that we have. You, If you double the level of CO2, you don't increase its greenhouse effect very much. Uh, it's, it's roughly goes logarithmic in the amount of uh, CO2. Uh, I'm sorry to be that technical, but, but what that means is if doubling CO2, say, raises the temperature by a degree, Celsius, if you want to raise the temperature by two degrees Celsius, you don't simply uh, uh, add the same amount of CO2 again. You have to add four times as much CO2 to get two degrees as to get one degree. So it goes like the square root of the uh, amount of CO2 that you've added. 
so there, there, there are just many, many things that, uh, along with historical uh, uh, records of what climate has done in the past, that indicate that CO2 doesn't have a very big effect on the temperature. If you look at historical records of uh, temperature and CO2, they don't correlate terribly well. What correlation there is seems to indicate that if temperature goes up, CO2 goes up, that's probably because oceans are outgassing CO2. Most of the CO2 uh, in the world is, is in the oceans, you know, at least CO2 that's free to uh, be released. There's much, much more bound up in limestone, you know. Just look at, you know, the Alps, you know, thousands of feet of CO2 bound up to calcium. So the amount, the amount in the atmosphere is, is not very much, and uh, it, it doesn't make much difference if you double it or, or, or even you know, triple or quadruple it. It's, it's done that in the past, in the geological past. All right, so um, from what you just said and from the article, it seems like what we know for sure is there's, there's a greenhouse effect based on CO2 absorbing radiation. It work, By itself, it works logarithmically, so you need to double uh, you know, t you need to g double the concentration or double the amount to get a one degree. Quadruple, a quadruple if you want to get. If you want to. Yeah, if you want and, to get two degrees. And right. double yeah, if you yeah, want yeah, to yeah. get one. Um, yeah. And then, and then that the lower limit, basically where all the plants are going to die, and that means we're going to have no food, uh, is 150. And then the upper limit, according to, I think you said the Navy, is around 5,000 parts per million. Well, 5,000 is, is a Navy figure, but uh, as I mentioned, we, we exhale CO2, which is at 40,000 parts per million, which is eight times higher than the Navy limit. And uh, so 5,000 is quite conservative. Yeah, there, you wouldn't notice a thing if you lived in 5,000 parts of CO2 as, as a person, and plants would do much, much better. And uh, the amount of warming caused by that, there would be some warming probably caused by that, but it's been greatly exaggerated. You know, this is a quantitative thing. It doesn't, it's not just a sign that it warms, it's, it's how much is the warming. <laughs> and, and that's what's been glossed over. Yeah, and I think it's important that we have this, this baseline of, okay, this is, this is what's well established. And so this is what everyone in the debate is taking for granted, whereas many people would say of you, oh, he denies the greenhouse effect, or they, they try to smear um, people who oppose what they say by by packaging what they say that's not well established, sometimes arbitrary or unlikely, with things that are uh, well established. So once once we get past this, where how is it that it, so based on this, you would think. Okay, we're actually 390 or 400 parts per million. If we just look at human life and expectations, we would expect it to be, we would, unless we think 270 pre industrial revolution, unless we think that's some magical number just because we happen to live in that point in time, then we'd think 390 was better, certainly not worse. And plus, if we look at the history, warm periods are generally uh, more fertile periods and better for human life overall. So, how do people how how historically in the evolution or uh, reverse evolution of this field did did these baseline things go to 
it's all leading us to a catastrophe and it's all CO2's fault and it's all our fault. Well, I don't fully understand it. Uh, you know, there are all shades of opinion out there of people who are, uh, you know, profess to be alarmed about CO2. You know, there are uh, those who uh, are easily frightened and don't know very much science and uh, sincerely believe that we've got a terrible problem and we've got to stop emitting CO2. You know, I think if they were better educated, they would realize that, the, you know, they've been sold you know, a bill of goods. There are others who uh, sort of know that there's exaggerations, but, you know, their financial well-being depends on keeping the alarm going, you know, so that, you know, green non-government, you know, organizations that raise money by frightening people about CO2, some politicians, many scientists, I'm sorry to say, you know, whose uh, research income depends on continually coming up with more scare stories about CO2. So there, there's this, and then there's business, you know, makes a lot of money, you know, installing windmills, you know, selling solar panels, you know, various other things to save the planet, you know, when you have something that's so important as that, saving the planet, then, you know, you can uh, ignore many things that most people w would normally consider, you know, like the sanctity of, you know, human life, for example. So, I mean, so, you know, if you, if you have an idol, you know, like saving the planet there, that, that uh, supersedes every other human value, then, then uh, that's kind of dangerous for other humans. Yeah. So I want to, uh, I want to, want to run by you an idea that occurred to me while I was reading the article, because this is something I'm really interested in terms of this. And I think people in general are interested in if this is wrong, if this publicly presented quote science is, is overwhelmingly wrong, how does that happen? And it seems like a lot of it is, is this distinction we've been talking about between really what's been established and then what's highly speculative. And it seems that in um, kind of madness of crowd scenarios that you mentioned in your article or, or general phenomena over history of science being completely abused, one commonality is that the things that people are denying or advocating are not contradicting the very basic known laws or mechanisms such as the greenhouse effect. What they're doing is they're entering the realm of speculation and then they're, and then they're claiming a level of certainty and that, and then, so, and, but one reason they can get away with that is because no, no one has a definite theory of how everything works. And at the same time, they are by their incentive system, whether they're governments or uh, trade groups or whatever you want to call the American Physical Society and the like, they have, they're being asked to take positions that are ultimately political in nature that they have no means of knowing. So when the American Physical Society takes a position that says, we determine scientifically that we need to reduce greenhouse gases to benefit humans, they're in no position to know that. I mean, they don't know anything about economics. By, so it's, it's clear that they have a goal that is not simply laying out what we know and what we don't know, but rather advancing some agenda. And if you're dealing with very uncertain territory, it seems like you can very easily co-opt science for that purpose. Yeah, uh, 
Well, uh, every now and then science gets off on one of these tangents. This is uh, the climate, you know, uh, wars are a good example, but there have been others in the past. For for example, in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, there was this uh, eugenics movement, which uh, many scientists signed on to, uh, you know, quite respectable people. It was based on all sorts of flawed data. You know, people thought that uh, they could prove that Europeans were superior to any other race or that Germans were superior to Europeans or God knows what, you know, it was all nonsense. You know, it was based on lots of fabricated data and uh, yet uh, it seemed vaguely plausible. And so you had uh, presidents of major universities, several presidents of Harvard, you know, uh, who were committed uh, supporters of eugenics. Alexander Graham Bell was a supporter uh, many of the uh, foundations today that I think the Rockefeller Foundation put a lot of money into this. It was all nonsense. You know, I mean, it's been shown it's nonsense since then. But um, it, it seemed uh, so reasonable and it seemed so righteous. So people glommed on to this righteous cause, you know, we're going to improve humanity by uh, eugenics. It, it didn't look so good when uh, people, you know, like some of the uh, totalitarian movements in, in Europe in the 30s uh, uh, jumped on that bandwagon too. That seems like exactly the same kind of phenomenon as, as going from the greenhouse effect to this catastrophism because you have certain truths discovered by Darwin about the basic nature of uh, species. And then you had this mania at the time. And it was I know from philosophy, it was true among philosophers, among other fields, where they just tried to apply this to everything and they did all these kinds of speculative applications where they didn't really know what they were talking about, but they, they pretended that their theories were as ground or their applications were as grounded as Darwin's. And then com that combined with whatever moral political goal is popular at the time allows you to get this, uh, this mass movement. I'm curious how, in your experience, how this applies to I think what you called your profession's trade union, uh, the American Physical Society, and then the other trade unions in science, uh, because they, it's a big point by advocates of catastrophic global warming that every scientific society has signed on, blah, 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 and therefore, who are we to, you know, to question it? Well, uh, when you have a movement like this, it, it isn't that hard to get you know, scientific organizations to sign on. This this happened in the Soviet Union under uh, Stalin and Khrushchev uh, with biology, where there was this bizarre uh, um, guy, Lysenko, who uh, didn't believe in genes, you know, and in fact, if you admitted that you believed in genes, you were lucky if you only got fired from your job in the Soviet Union. Some people were actually executed. And... Uh, he had complete support, you know, from most of the uh, Soviet scientific groups, or at least passive acquiescence. And it took a very, very long time before they had the courage to bring him down. So uh, the reason, of course, is you you know which side your your bread is buttered on. And if the political structure seems to want uh, 
endorsement of uh, catastrophic global warming. So, you know, you can put taxes on carbon or whatever the heck it is they want to do. Uh, then you're going to think twice about uh, uh, contradicting them. So I, and, and if, you, if you look, you know, at these uh, society endorsements, uh, the membership is never polled. You know, you never, it's never voted on. You know, nobody uh, uh, ever uh, really approaches the membership uh, uh, or publishes the vote. You know, do you, you know, what do you think uh, the warming due to doubling of CO2 is and how dangerous is it? You know, the, such things really are decided by a small clique. Uh, of the leadership, which I suppose thinks they're doing the best they can for science, you know, protecting science. But uh, I don't think it's protecting science. I think it's uh, causing enormous damage to uh, the reputation of science. Yeah, these, I did a whole show once on just the American Physical Society statement, which I found to fail, you know, a logic 101 class. And it struck me how weaselly it was because it, it, it got its certainty from saying certain obvious true things about greenhouse effect, et cetera. And then it made these enormous um, uh, non sequiturs to therefore it's catastrophic to therefore the only thing that we can do about it is, you know, effectively ban most CO2 emitting uh, energy. It was just, it was obviously meant to satisfy some political need, and it wasn't a scientific statement. I think if people look at these statements, they'll find that they don't agree on anything. They don't even really say anything. They just say a jumble of of kind of popular claims. And the only thing they can really say scientifically is things that everyone agree on. So there's there's no there's no established truth on the controversial things, just the uncontroversial things, as far as I can tell. Well, many people in the uh, leadership of the American Physical Society will have told me confidentially and others that they, they really regret this statement having come out, that it shouldn't have come out that way. And, uh, you know, it happened because uh, the original statement, which sort of reasonable, uh, was to be voted on by the management and uh there were a few hotheads in, in the group who felt it wasn't strong enough. And so over lunch, they rewrote the statement and then rammed it through without anybody paying attention because they all wanted to catch their planes and get home. And so now they're stuck with this stupid thing about incontrovertible science, you know, a good grief. There's no incontrovertible science, but they have to live with it and they're afraid to change it. You know, because they, uh, it will be surrendering to the opposition. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, there's this old uh, saying, you know, if you're in a hole, stop digging. They, they, they've not managed to understand that one. <laughs> so, so they're still in the in their incontrovertible hole. I guess a broader question would be, why the heck is the American Physical Society or any of these other societies? taking these collective public stands because if we look at at what people know and agree upon the stuff they know really is trivial and the stuff they don't agree agree upon is what's important so to it, it shows an enormous lack of security in their position to pretend that everyone agrees on it and, and to an i don't even know what the purpose of the american physical society is i don't know but it, it certainly seems like it's completely invalid to make some global declaration. And I've never seen them make a prominent declaration on 
quantum mechanics. I mean, I assume there's a lot of disagreement in quantum mechanics, and then there are certain things that everyone acknowledges, and they can just say that publicly. But in this field, it's viewed as a as important to make to have a united front to prod people into action that they might not take if they knew the actual state of evidence. So just, I don't know why. Is there any reason for them to take a statement? To make a statement? Well, I, of course, I, I don't think they should have made the statement. And I think many, uh, many people in the American Physical Society agree with me, and they're, they're sorry they made this statement. Uh, in defense of the American Physical Society, it, it's been much better than any of the other societies I can think of. I mean, if the American Geophysical Union is much worse, you know, they're, they're, if you just look across the list of them, American Physical Society at least has permitted. Uh, some debate of this, you know, they they haven't gone quite as far as they should have, but but nevertheless, they've shown a lot more courage than any of their competing societies. Uh, I, I think they, you know, these statements really shouldn't be made in the first place. You know, it's it's a stupid, you know, self-defeating thing for science as a whole to be making statements like this. I want to talk about just climate science as a field and the term climate scientist, which has acquired a fairly negative significance in my mind, the more of their work I read and the more of their behavior I witness. And I was, I was doing a search on you on the internet and I happened to find an article about you uh, in of all places, Duke's Nicholas school of the environment. And Duke is where I'm uh, actually where I went to school, but also where I happened to be debating Bill McKibben in November. So I, I, I looked at it. And it, it made this whole song and dance, this guy, let's see, he's the dean of the school, mind you. So I would think as dean, he's supposed to really just set certain basic questions and then have people uh, inquire, not not declare. But he says his, his first sentence of his bio is, we are on an unsustainable course. So obviously he's got a certain uh, established belief. But anyway, he, he says about you, he basically says, well, we shouldn't take you seriously because you're not a quote, climate scientist. And it seems that someone who's a physicist would, uh, if climate science, if a climate scientist can really prove his case, it should, it should be under, he should be able to demonstrate predictions that are accessible to a layman like me, let alone a physicist. So I'm curious what you think about this idea that climate scientists have this magic insider, incommunicable knowledge that we just need to listen to them and take them on faith. Well, yeah, of course, that's nonsense. Um, you know, climate is mostly physics. Uh, it's got a little bit of chemistry in there, but it's, you know, radiation transfer, it's fluid dynamics, and, uh, you know, it has been uh, politicized so much that you can get a PhD in climate sciences uh, without having had any physics, really. Uh, for example, I, someone was telling me that at East Anglia, you know, sort of the... Uh, the Vatican of climate science, uh, you don't have to even take college physics to get a degree. Well, that, that's absolutely crazy when, when all the key issues involve physics, you know, you know, uh, how much convection are you, are you going to get, you know, uh, how, how much is water vapor going to change, you know, uh, what, what really is the opacity, infrared opacity, how does it depend on pressure and temperature, all of these things, every one of them has some uh, uncertain points in them, and uh, both many, many, many clients, 
kind of scientists I've talked to don't don't even understand the basics. You know, I, I rem- recently talked to a very distinguished physicist who was very alarmed about you know global warming. He didn't even know what, what the absorption frequencies of CO2 were. You know, hadn't he hadn't a clue. You know, but he was sure that he was saving the planet. And uh, I think that's particularly bad for a physicist who's supposed to understand some quantitative aspects of of these things. Uh, so any, anyway, I, I think uh, I can't think of a field where people are more qualified to criticize uh, climate science than physics. I mean, you don't have to be a you don't have to be an astrologer to criticize astrology. It's okay to be an astronomer. <laughs> uh, I like I like that example. Well, the, the example of the physicist and not knowing the infrared frequency. Uh, reminds me of, a, of another question I had while well, thinking about this recently and reading your article, which is, what is the range of people who fall under the label scientist? Because to, to, to give what I think the culture's view is scientist, when we hear, oh, the scientists agree, it, it's, it's as if each scientist is this all-knowing mini Einstein who is familiar with all the data and it's obvious and he has this revelation and and thus, all we need to do is listen to him instead of. My understanding is that it's it's much more distributed in terms of different people have vastly different amounts uh, of knowledge relevant to this kind of subject. Yeah, science is uh, extremely diverse, and people have uh, different talents, different ways of approaching uh, problems. Some are extremely quantitative and uh, analytical. Others uh, have just brilliant intuition, you know, and maybe have a hard time quantifying it, but they're often right. And uh, so you need them all, and and you also need to have uh, sort of constant skepticism, you know, that, that nobody is infallible. Even the greatest scientists make mistakes. And, uh, and it's not it's really not like uh a religion it's not like uh you know islam where you know you there's a quran and you know if you insult the quran or the prophet you know that's the end of you or or that's true of many other religions too including christian religions uh it's not religion you know it's it's something where if you're not questioning you're not doing your job well, to, to jump on the religion thing, it, it's, it really seems as if science today is treated as an establishment like the Catholic Church, because I, I've been reading a lot of Bill McKibben lately since I'm debating him, and he just always refers to science, almost with a capital S, as just science says this. This is what science is. This is. And if I think about what science means in reality, there are all these individual scientists, some of whom know very little, some of whom know a lot, a lot of them disagree. And to aggregate them in that way and then demand obedience instead of having them compete to offer me evidence, it seems like just a, almost a religious establishment. Yeah, yeah. Of course, the climate establishment has done everything possible to, uh, uh, to convince people that there is a, you know, a true certified science and they've got it and uh, anybody who disagrees with them isn't a scientist and uh, 
And then, you know, the unfortunately, the media has sort of helped them on that. Uh, but the, this is a tremendous distortion of what science historically has been. And I think it will uh, cause a lot of damage that will take a long time to repair. I guess, uh, I guess it is in some ways a distortion, but it seems like if you look at the evolution example, population control, things in nutrition, particularly wherever the government sets a monopoly position and sets some invalid goal, like the purpose of climate science is to show us how bad CO2 is, which is essentially the I'm paraphrasing the goal of the IPCC. Whenever that happens, it seems like a common phenomenon throughout history or, or even government saying DDT is destructive. And unfortunately, we've seen in history, it's, you know, it can lead to literal massacres. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was tremendous overreaction with DDT, which uh, led to uh, great misery across much of the world, you know, where it had been so successful in, uh, you know, getting rid of malaria and other insects bred diseases. Uh, you know, you can abuse anything, including insecticides, but, but uh, to have the sort of sledgehammer approach uh, uh, to something that really uh, requires uh, some uh, discernment and, and uh, choice is just crazy. And we're doing it again with climate. Well, my final question is, and you're going to have to do a little thought experiment here. Imagine that you were, I don't want to say like Michael Mann or, but someone, let's say you, you were, you had a, you felt like you had a strong hypothesis that feedback loops, uh, you know, that, that there could be this feedback loop of, um, you know, I forget exactly what it is, but the, you know, the water vapor and the CO2 magnet sort of magnifying one another and that that was a real possibility. How would you go about presenting that to the, to the world and to other scientists in contrast to the dogmatic, you should believe it because science says it approach today? If, if you really had this concern, but, and, and it was a hypothesis, but you, you couldn't yet prove it. Well, uh, science is always making unproven uh, hypotheses and um, putting them up for, for test. Uh, for example, Einstein you know, hypothesized that the sun would uh, bend starlight around it, which you could observe during an eclipse. And so they waited for the uh, first convenient eclipse and then did the measurement. And uh, everyone was holding their breath. Well, was, was Einstein's prediction right or not? Could have gone either way. So it's, it's uh, normal to make predictions that have to be tested out there. And, uh, and that's what climate scientists has done with, it, with these temperature predictions. And they're way off. You know, the temperature rise is much less than any of the models predicted. So there, there's something that needs to be repaired in the models. And, and you know, and instead you've got people running around trying to fiddle with the data, you know, well, the data isn't right, it really is warming, you know, uh, rather than, you know, taking the most straightforward uh, approach, which is normal in science, is, well, if the model doesn't work, fix the model. There's nothing wrong with the world. The world tells you the truth when you do the measurement, if, if you're careful and don't make a mistake in the measuring. 
just as a technical question, because this this just I just saw this in this um, Duke piece, and it pertained to the question I just asked. He, this guy says, uh, disagreeing with you, when CO two increases, temperatures increase slight. Oh, actually, yeah. When CO two increases, temperature increases slightly. These higher temperatures cause an increase in water vapor which cause an additional increase in temperatures, which cause an increase in water vapor and so on. The result is a vicious cycle with a much larger temperature increase than would have happened if only CO2 increased. And then he says this is proven by satellite observations that show that water vapor concentrations have increased in the past decades as predicted by the water vapor theory. What do you, what would you say to that? Well, it's not true. You know, I mean, you can look at the data. It's very fuzzy data, but, but, uh, it's not at all clear that the water vapor uh, has increased in the atmosphere. We we don't have very good records there. And and secondly, you know, even if even with all that, you know, where where is the temperature rise? You know, why why hasn't there been uh, a rise in temperature in over ten years? You know, if if these are such great models, uh, you have to explain that. And that that's a enormous problem. It's not happening. And anybody can look at that. There's nothing very uh, subtle about it. Yeah, and, and I'm going to recommend again, I'm going to put this on the website, this article. I, I really like just because it, it takes a really, co not common sense, common sense, but also scientific and big picture look. And I find that's often lacking where people will give you some sophisticated thing about a feedback loop and it sounds like, oh, that's that makes sense. But they don't point out that the evidence the actual gold standard, which is its ability to predict reality, doesn't exist. And that's for a layman, for, for someone like me and most of my audience, what we need to rely on in large part is can these theories, do they have predictive ability? Because otherwise we have no way of knowing. Like we believe in the physics that sent the man onto the moon, in part because they sent man onto the moon. But these guys aren't doing anything close to that. They're just mm -hmm. making a bunch of, of invalid predictions. Well, you know, one of the reasons that they're pushing so hard on uh, extreme events as being due to CO2 is because the temperature isn't rising, you know, so they, they you know, Arctic ice, you know, hurricanes, tornadoes, it's all, you know, drought, it's all due to CO2. Well, the reason that they're pushing it so hard is because the temperature isn't rising and there, there's no... There's no way any of these other things could happen without the temperature rising if they're connected with CO2. So, so none of it makes any logical sense. You know, without the temperature rising, the, the whole thing falls apart. Well, the temperature rise, I mean, temperature rise as such, I, it seems very, I, I, that doesn't make sense to me that that would lead to all these crazy storms anyway. Well, how, how can all these crazy things happen and there be no change in temperature? You know, well, no, no, I agree with that. I mean, I agree that yeah, yeah, I agree yeah. that it requires for their theory, but I don't think their theory of temperature makes as in if it goes up two degrees, how does that lead to more storms? That just seems like an ideological that seems dogmatic just because they oppose somehow industrial activity, not because warm is somehow worse. Warm is generally better, from my understanding. That's certainly what history shows. All right, great. Well, uh, let's wrap it up with that. Um, is there anywhere on the web where people can find you or get more information? Well, uh, I, I think I have a, a sort of a technical university website, but uh, 
and you can find, you know, lots of poison pen articles on me by Googling my name. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, make, make your, you know, people should make their own decisions. You know, I've stated what I think as clearly as I can. And, uh, you know, I stand by what I've said. Uh, all right. Well, thank you very much for being on, the, being on the program. I learned a lot from your article. I learned a lot from uh, being able to ask you all those questions, and I'm, I'm sure my listeners do. So thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate the call. Thanks again to Dr. William Happer for being on the show. One thing that, that comes to mind, he, he brought up many, many interesting points, but was something I like to stress on the show, which is just the importance of independent evaluation of things. At the end of the show, he, he made a point of saying, look, don't take my word for it. Go investigate it for yourself. And he's a, you know, he's a very well-respected physicist, as you saw during the show. He knows a lot of the, the specifics about the physics of climate. And yet his parting message is judge things for yourself. Now, that can be intimidating sometimes. And but it, it is it is definitely possible and it's definitely necessary on on the show where we talked about uh, how to detect pseudoscience. Eric Dennis and I addressed this issue that a there's no way to know there's no way to sort of trust scientific authorities. You have to because we see them being wrong all the time. So you have to have some sort of critical thinking. And at the same time, that although you can't know all the evidence about something. You can know the essential evidence and the essential argument and use your knowledge of logic and your and your common sense to see if it makes sense. Thus, if someone claims that they can predict the future of the climate and their climate models have never actually worked, it doesn't matter what your position or PhD or lack of PhD is, you can say that is that is not logical. It doesn't make sense and I'm certainly not going to um, dismantle the energy energy infrastructure of Western civilization uh, in response to to such a model. And that's that's just one of the things I think to really take away uh, from this interview. And because of the way he presents the knowledge, it's very, very clear. He explains his points very, very thoroughly. And thus that can really be a supplement to your knowledge because you're getting it with explanation and evidence not on authority. And anyone who tells you to believe something because he's an authority is not being scientific. So on that note, I will wrap up the show. I want to remind everyone again of my debate with Bill McKibben on November 5th. Get details and give us financial support at www.fossilfueldebate.com. Uh, it's a, I think it's a, a really exciting opportunity. It's very, very rare that you'll get an environmentalist superstar on stage. And you know, I think I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens when our worldviews collide. So again, fossilfueldebate.com. All right. That's it for this week. As always, any questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. We'll be, we'll be back next week another great guest, another great show. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.